From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. In this episode, we're digging into what may be the most important issue of our time, climate change. On the heels of a climate-focused World Economic Forum in Davos, the unveiling of Europe's new Green Deal, and increased attention on climate change by the world's largest asset managers and banks, climate change is undoubtedly top of mind. But before we dig in, let's take a step back. At the UN Climate Change Conference in Paris in 2015, nearly 200 countries committed to the Paris Agreement, which outlined a long-term goal to keep the rise in global average temperatures to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, with an attempt to further limit the rise to 1.5 degrees. To level set where we are today in terms of achieving this goal, I first sat down with Nat Kohan, Senior Vice President of the Environmental Defense Fund. Three years on from the Paris Climate Accord, where are we today in terms of limiting the increase in global average temperatures? Well, we're very far away from it. Despite some of the gains in the past few years of starting to slow the growth of carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions globally, they're still rising. And even if you look at what the trajectory would be if all of the current targets countries have put on the table for the Paris Agreement were met by 2025, 2030, we would still be very far away from the trajectory we need to meet the overall objective of the agreement. We obviously just concluded another round of UN climate talks, which took place in Madrid, and they ended without any new commitments to emission reductions. What should we take away from that? It's certainly true there were no new major commitments. I don't think anybody really expected that there would be. What was a little bit surprising or disappointing, parties weren't even able to agree on language around ambition in the ultimate decision that was produced by the conference. The fact that they couldn't even agree on talking about the importance of ambition was not a good sign. So if climate change is such a pressing problem today, why is it so difficult to achieve a solution? I turn to Michael Greenstone, director of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago, to better understand the complexity of the climate challenge and the trade-offs associated with it. I think the right way to think about this is to think about the global energy challenge. And that's a challenge that societies around the world and certainly developing countries face which is how to balance the need for inexpensive and reliable energy, which is so critical for economic growth. And that economic growth is especially urgent in developing countries. And how the countries and societies balance that need with the need to manage local pollutants, which are often the result of energy consumption. And of course, how to manage the release of CO2 and how it increases the odds of disruptive climate change. And Different societies are going to reach different conclusions about that. So there's this very delicate balance, which I like to call the global energy challenge. Is it realistic to think that the lion's share of energy in developing economies that they need to propel growth is going to come from anything but fossil fuels? In the absence of fundamental changes in the cost of fossil fuels versus low-carbon energy sources, 
I think we should expect that developing countries will continue to prioritize the use of fossil fuels. But both Greenstone and Kohan don't necessarily see a trade-off between economic growth and emissions reductions over the longer term. In fact, Kohan argues that addressing climate change isn't harmful to growth, but ultimately essential to it, because he sees no high-carbon path to a prosperous future. There is no future in which we emit at the current levels and we have high prosperity, because the impacts of climate change will be devastating to people, to the planet, and to our economy. So there is no future of high-carbon prosperity. That does not exist. The only pathway to future prosperity is a low-carbon pathway. How we do that, what kinds of policies we put in place, how flexible they are, how market-based, how efficient they are, will determine whether that transition and that future is one of high prosperity and better and faster growth, or whether that transition turns out to be one where we're putting on the brakes on the economy because we've waited so long in the face of natural disasters that we have no other choice. So how do we actually start to move in the right direction toward reducing emissions? Both Greenstone and Kohan argue that the best step forward is putting a price on carbon, which today is basically a free externality. In other words, people don't have to pay to pollute. But how will carbon pricing actually help achieve this? I turn to Steve Strongen, our head of global investment research, for an explanation. Carbon prices can help address climate change in three ways. What you really want to think about would be how much carbon do you get out of the atmosphere per dollar spent? That's the definition of efficiency. And you only really get people focused on efficiency when you pay them for the carbon removed. Then they'll focus on the carbon removed per dollar spent. That's very important. The second, which is probably even more important, is specialization. A lot of the current rules and regulations focus on the source of the carbon the utility, the car, the oil. There's no particular reason to expect that the utilities are going to be the best and smartest at curing the carbon problem. There's no particular reason to believe that car companies are going to be the smartest and best. They might be, but there's no reason why they have to be. And so with a carbon price, other people can make the investment and solve the problem so that you get specialization by who's best at solving the problem as opposed to specialization based on who's causing the problem. And that's a very big difference and could lead to major efficiencies. The third, which potentially is even more important, is the way it will allow people to invest in R&D. It allows people to invest in a more thoughtful way against a known price. Because the most basic thing about investing is calculating a present value of what the technology might be worth. And that requires a price. But establishing a price for carbon is easier said than done. There are two primary ways to do so. Carbon taxes, which effectively assign a price for carbon, and cap-and-trade programs, which set a limit on emissions and enable participants to trade emissions allowances under the cap, which gives rise to a price. On the debate between carbon taxes and cap-and-trade programs, Greenstone is relatively agnostic between the two. I think it is an awesome parlor game in academia about whether or not one prefers a cap-and-trade trading scheme versus a carbon tax. And there are compelling arguments on both sides. The real issue is that the effective price on carbon in most parts of the United States and certainly around the world is very, very close to zero. And 
I think the first thing and most important thing is to get the price of carbon to be something approaching the social cost of carbon. The social cost of carbon is the monetized value of the damages associated with the release of an additional ton of CO2. That's changes in mortality rates, changes in crop yields, changes in labor supply, changes in flooding, sea level rise, and on and on. Now, whether or not you get there through a carbon tax or cap and trade, to me, is, I think, a second order issue. The primary advantage of a cap and trade is that you have certainty on emissions, and the primary advantage of a carbon tax is that you have certainty on the price. And so you can't have both. <laughs> That's the problem. And depending on where you think the greater risk lies, you might think that the greater risk lies with the politics and that, you know, big price spikes would really undermine the entire system. Or you might think that the greater risk lies with the climate damages if we end up getting more emissions than we expect at a particular carbon price. And I think those are, you know, kind of political and societal judgments about which one is worse. As for Kohan, he believes that any approach must put both a price and a limit on emissions to ensure progress towards emissions targets. So he favors cap-and-trade programs over pure carbon taxes. I always say we need a limit and a price on greenhouse gas emissions. Economists like to talk about a price on carbon, and that's the necessary means, in a sense, to the end of driving down emissions. The reason the price works is because it aligns the incentives of private actors and of society at large, which is to address climate change. But the price is only a means to an end. We also need policies that reflect the end we're trying to achieve. And at a very simple level, the way we're going to solve climate change is putting less climate pollution into the atmosphere. So to get there, we need not only the price that provides the economic incentives, but we need limits on the total pollution we're putting into the atmosphere. You can do that with a carbon tax or with a cap-and-trade system. The advantage of emissions trading or cap-and-trade is that it integrates the limit and the price directly into that policy design. The cap provides the limit on emissions and the trading gives rise to the price. If we were to use a carbon tax, we would need a carbon tax that also imposes some sort or establishes some sort of limit. So you could imagine a carbon tax, for example, that set out a trajectory for the carbon tax over time, but also put a benchmark in place for what the declining emission trajectory needs to look like and had a provision that would automatically increase the tax if emissions were higher than that target trajectory. But Strongen points out that the problem with schemes such as cap-and-trade and current proposals more broadly is that they presuppose an answer to the problem, most often assuming that it lies with the emitter. A lot of the carbon prices proposals people have proposed are essentially assuming the answer. Right? The simplest example of that is cap-and-trade. Cap-and-trade is basically saying the problem is these emissions, and the thing we have to do is reduce these emissions. That may be the answer. But if the answer is, no, actually, those emissions are economically efficient, what we really need to do is change the emissions over there or capture it somewhere else, then cap-and-trade doesn't necessarily get you the right answer. One of the weirdest ironies of this entire process, you need new technologies, innovations. 
But the two groups we've given the biggest incentives to come up with that innovation are electric utilities and car companies. If you asked almost anyone for a list of the most innovative places in the global economy, electric utilities and car companies aren't going to be in the top half of the list. That may not be fair to those companies, but we tend to think of bioengineering and technology and all sorts of other things when we think about innovation. We want to structure the system so that those innovations have a chance to happen and have a real impact. I think the most critical step is to bring back flexibility and innovation into the equation so that a non-emissions answer can be part of the solution. Of the potential solutions on the table today, both Strongen and Greenstone think batteries and carbon capture and sequestration hold promise. Here's Greenstone. I think the path to a green future with respect to carbon, it's very hard to see a path that doesn't run through more efficient batteries. And the batteries do two things. One, they're the key to reducing consumption of petroleum in the transport sector. But that's only carbon beneficial if the power sector is also low carbon. Because if you drive an electric vehicle in West Virginia, which is still got a big coal-heavy power sector, the CO2 emissions of your car are actually worse than if you're driving an internal combustion engine car. And that's because you're basically plugging your car into a coal plant. And one path out of that is greater reliance on renewables. But until we can use renewables throughout the day, not just from sunshine and when it's blowing, that's not a full answer. And batteries are the full answer to that because they can provide the storage to smooth out the production of energy from renewables. So I see batteries at this pivot point. They can both reduce carbon emissions from the transport sector, but only if the power sector has low CO2 emissions, and batteries seem a promising way to do that. I also can't help but think that making serious progress on carbon capture sequestration is got to be an important piece of the public. The world is awash in very, very inexpensive fossil fuels. And the idea that we're just going to leave them all on the ground untouched strikes me as not very likely. And so it seems incumbent upon us that we have a way to use them that is consistent with chemicals. And the path to that is to capture sequestration. But both Greenstone and Strongen also make the point that we may not yet know the most efficient solution to climate change. Here's Strongen. A decade ago, we were focused very much on running out of energy and peak oil and a whole set of issues like that. And you had a similar debate about what technology is going to solve this problem. And we did solve the problem. And a large part of the answer turned out to be shale. Shale wasn't on anybody's lists when people were making those lists. That was something that was discovered because the price was high. So what does this all mean for investors? Goldman Sachs analysts argue that the capital markets are driving a transition in the energy sector, with tighter financing for hydrocarbon assets leading to consolidation in the oil and gas industry, which is likely to result in a halt in non-OPEC supply growth, higher energy prices, and increased profitability of big oils. They also see Europe's recently announced 7 trillion euro green deal as a major investment opportunity for European energy and utility companies exposed to renewables and power networks. To get a broader perspective, I spoke with John Goldstein, the head of our sustainable finance group, about how to think about investing that targets environmental, social, and corporate governance, otherwise known as ESG investing. 
can you explain the investment rationale behind this? Because a lot of people do view these as sort of ideologically focused strategies. But what's the investment rationale? I get to spend a lot of time basically going through therapy with people who I like to say are either too apt to love this or too apt to hate it. And I think there often is a preconception about this as an ideological pursuit, which is more susceptible to these generalizations. It's magic, it's poison, it's good, it's bad, it works, it doesn't. This is investing. And for us, the key point is once you've established this as an investing question, as, as with any other investing question, you need a thesis. So for us, when we look at it, the thesis around ESG's relevance is not about E versus S versus G. Because often people say, break it down, give me the E versus S versus G. From our perspective, that's not actually the most constructive way to do it. It's what's the economic lever that translates some things into economic or financial performance? And for us, it's these three things. Does it reduce risk? Does it drive growth? Or is it a lever for efficiency? Think about renewable power. That's a growth opportunity for some companies. It's a risk for others. And it's a way to reduce energy expense for yet others, right? These things play out across a business model. But ultimately, what play out means is it does some combination of those three things. It reduces risk, which is really about drawdowns or losses. It drives growth, which is really about revenue. Or it's a lever for efficiency, which is really about margins. I then asked Goldstein about some of the buildup in ESG premiums and where he sees the most value in ESG investing today. So do you think there is a bubble in some of these ESG assets? I think that's probably too strong of a phrase. I think it's the level of conviction required to invest goes up as valuation goes up, right? Mm -hmm. So some of those are going to be amazing stories that are going to continue to skyrocket. And I think one way to have value is having that differential insight of which of those names really have a trajectory that continues to be accelerating and exciting and which don't. The question in any investment discipline, as something becomes more widely understood and more widely practiced, the bar for how you add value keeps on rising. That's how it should be. ESG is no different. And so as ESG becomes better understood and more widely practiced, it's not as easy just to add value by finding someone that is an obvious ESG success story and investing in them. You have to find the folks that may not be there yet. We know one asset manager whose whole strategy is buying mediocre ESG companies who want to be great. Others are looking fundamentally at companies whose sectors are in significant flux, and there will be winners and there will be losers, and finding the folks who over time can transition their businesses to be successful. In some cases, partnering. We've talked to some hedge funds more in the activist space. They're actually looking to partner with companies who want to go through that change and be good long-term partners for them. So I think in a lot of cases, it's finding those stories that are not yet as widely understood or appreciated. As investors, policymakers, and the world at large continue to think about how to approach this growing climate threat, one thing is certain, it's an issue that is sure to remain top of mind. I'll leave it there for now. If you've enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. 
The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.